everyone. Welcome to Shrink's Talk Shop, where psychotherapy experts share their thoughts with you. And you don't have to be a therapist to listen. First, a quote from this week's speaker. One of the biggest issues that older transgender individuals face is housing discrimination. So whether or not they're in a nursing home or an assisted living uh, home currently, getting into one, often people will feel like they have to be recloseted, even if they've been out for years, because they're afraid of being discriminated against and not getting a housing placement. We're speaking today with Rena McDaniel, who is a licensed clinical professional counselor and founder of Practical Audacity, which is a gender and sex therapy group practice and healing collective. I'm Barbara Alexander, the founder and president of On Good Authority, which is a website where mental health professionals can listen to interviews with psychotherapy experts and earn the continuing education credits they need to renew their licenses. I'm a clinical social worker, and I started this company in 1992. Since then, I've interviewed hundreds of experts, and now I'm going to share some of the best of them with you. Rena, there are a lot of older people, by older, I mean, let's just say over 65, who are trans. What kind of issues come up for them? I mean, we there's a lot in the media now about children and adolescents and whether to encourage them or discourage them from making the changeover. But now we have the subject of, the, of older, elderly people who are trans. Is that really frequent? How much does that occur in the population, would you think? I don't have any specific numbers. Um, and the reason that I keep saying I don't have very specific numbers or research is that there isn't a ton of research that is funded around trans individuals. So we don't have as much information as we would like around numbers about how many people are coming out over the age of 65. Um, I know in my own practice, I've seen a number of people who have come out over the age of 65. I think there is a bit more permission to do that, um, so to speak. Our culture is becoming a little bit more aware of trans individuals. It's in the media more. We have several high-profile people who have come out as trans. Um, and as silly as it may sound, I think Caitlyn Jenner coming out was one of the things that gave a lot of older individuals a little bit of permission. They saw themselves in that a little bit, I think. And some people started questioning or acknowledged things that have been going on their whole life. So I think a lot more people are are coming out at an older age because there is support for that now. There are therapists who know how to help somebody through that. There's more permission in the media. Um, so I would say one of the big things that I hear is a, a real feeling of loss and grief about not being able to transition earlier. And that that's a lot, that comes from a lot of places. Um, our society didn't really support trans people coming out 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40, 50 years ago. Um, it happened, but often those people were very ostracized. Um, and there was a real threat of violence, especially for people who are trans feminine, who are presenting female. It can be very dangerous to come out, especially, like I said, 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, it's still dangerous for trans women, especially trans women of color, but 
slightly less so, I would venture to say, than in the past. Um, so there's that piece culturally. It wasn't, quote unquote, allowed. Um, a lot of people weren't introduced to these terms, to concepts about trans folks until much later in their lives. We really weren't hearing about it in the media um, and popular culture until the last 10 years, really. Uh, I would say maybe even six. Um, so in that piece, they have families, they have careers. There is the potential for a lot of loss that comes out with someone coming out as trans, but there's still a bit of a mourning of, well, now I'm, I'm 65 and this is exciting that I'm exploring this piece of myself, but what would it have been like if I had been able to explore this part of myself when I was 30? Um, how my, my life have, have looked different. And so it's helping people through that bit of ambiguous loss of the life that they might've had. You know the subject of Caitlyn Jenner is is um, so important. What a what a, a favor in a, in a way that she did mm -hmm. uh, by changing by change how what courage that it took to change from being Bruce Jenner on the special protein cereal boxes as the world champion, the breakfast of champions, Wheaties, and yep. to go from Bruce Jenner who then married and had children and had a life. And then to make that change, it, it, it's, was re it's really quite phenomenal. And I wonder if it's harder if the male, original male person is big and strong and all the things that Bruce Jenner was to then become female. It's, it would be different. It, it, it I'm asking, is it different if the person, if the person who is male originally, biologically, is, is sort of more petite and then it, they can transition more smoothly than somebody who is muscular like Bruce Jenner was? It must be very difficult in that kind of situation. You know, that brings up a good point. Um, I would say culturally, it can be easier for people who already kind of fit what society puts into a more feminine box, like shorter, more petite, um, generally a smaller frame. Yeah, it can be easier culturally. And what I like to tell my clients, because I've had a number of clients who were tall and athletic and um, had a, a life that they lived that was very centered around things like sports. Um, there are women of all types. There are really tall women. We often call them models. Um, there are people who are very strong, <laughs> yes. who are, we often call athletes and Olympic athletes. You look at Serena Williams' arms, those arms have mind beats forever. Um, and I would venture to say probably any person identified male that you come across, her arms can probably rival those. So I, I want to question that idea that feminine and femininity and womanhood means small, petite, not muscular, not athletic, 
because um, we have lots of examples of women who are tall and strong and powerful that we can look to. Thank you. That's very helpful. We're in the middle of an interview with Rena McDaniel, and I'm Barbara Alexander from On Good Authority. And this episode of my podcast is taken from my recent interview with Rena. And then I asked her, Well, I remember in the presentation that I I heard you give at Northwestern some months ago, you talked about the problems that occur when senior elderly people are are in nursing homes or in in that kind of elder care situation. And I was hoping we could talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the biggest issues that older transgender individuals face is housing discrimination. So whether or not they're in a nursing home or an assisted living uh, home currently, getting into one, often people will feel like they have to be recloseted, even if they've been out for years, because they're afraid of being discriminated against and not getting a housing placement. So that is, that's a big concern in that population. Also, once somebody is in an assisted living or a retirement community, There can be discrimination from staff, from other residents. Um, They might not get the care that they need. They might have a lot of um, harassment is something that happens, or they're a little bit at, maybe not even a little bit, perhaps a lot more at risk of abuse by staff members who are um, discriminatory or have some sort of bias or stigma against them. So that's something that is It's known. Um, There's been a lot of action to try to reduce that happening. There have been more retirement communities that have put out explicit non-discrimination statements, uh, retirement communities that specialize in the LGBTQ population. And so I'm hoping that this will become less of a thing in the next, say, 10 years. But we know that it's not going to disappear that change doesn't happen that quickly, um, that drastically. And so it's something for people to consider as they're considering where they, their, um, their care for themselves as they're growing older, which is something as therapists that we can help them talk through, um, and ways that they can fight it. If that is happening, there is protections and people who will advocate for them. Um, so that is a big thing. Let's say you're a counselor and you're working in a, a senior living center or a nursing home, and the person is admitted, and they've checked the box as male. Uh-huh. So they are admitted as a self-identified male, but that's not really who experience they experience themselves, and they have lived as female. So mm-hmm. then, what happens? How, as a counselor in in the, in the setting, what would you, how would you recommend dealing with the staff and the management and the other other people who are living in the other residents who might say, I, I thought I was living in in a place for for females and you know that confusion that will happen. Yeah. So as a counselor, how would you handle these things? So first, I would talk to the individual in question. So I would see why it is that maybe they checked male when they've been identifying as female for a long time, or they scared uh, of being discriminated against or not getting a placement. Um, Do they want to be out in 
wherever they're living? And if not, how can you support them in that for now? Um, we never want to force somebody to come out if they're not ready or willing to do that. And sometimes people have reasons for not wanting to. Uh, so I think that is an important background piece to know and let somebody have agency and whether or not they're going to come out. Beyond that, whether or not the person wants to come out, if they checked mail, I'm assuming that maybe there is something in that setting that made them feel unsafe identifying as female. So I would um, start kind of questioning that and doing a bit of advocacy. Does the, the home have a non-discrimination statement? Do they have policies in place for people who are trans? Um, do they have staff who are trained in how to talk to and work with people who are trans? Do, does the general public who's also living there maybe need a little bit of education? Um, in my experience, a lot of people who are older are very open to learning about um, different identities, and they they want to support people. Um, and the issue is just lack of knowledge and confusion. And I understand why when they were growing up, there wasn't this knowledge that we have now. Um, so it makes total sense why they wouldn't know. How would they? Um, so I think there's a lot on the advocacy route that you can do as a therapist, regardless of um, whether or not your client ultimately decides that they, they do want to come out or not. Um, you're paving the way either way for other potential residents to feel way more at home. And you also don't know that there aren't other people in the home who also have gender dysphoria or um, are identifying as trans who are also closeted. You're just not sure what impact that could have on the people who are already there. Are nursing homes, let's say, allowed to uh, expel a person who turns out to be not what they... Well, there's a, a lot to that question. So legally, could they? You know, I honestly don't know. In uh, Trump's America, it's possible. Um in a lot of cases, I would say probably legally no, although there might be some cases if, um, if it's a religious institution where they could call on religious freedom rights. Um, we know that happens if gender identity specifically is not mentioned in their non-discrimination policy. They can use that. There's also a lot of other ways that you can more subtly push somebody out. Uh, you can harass them, you can raise their prices, you can make it a living hell to be there so that maybe they don't expel them per se, but they really leave them no choice but to leave or to live a life that is really um, hellish. Well, it's tough. It's tough to be in the middle when you're, the world is not in the gray area. The world is one thing or the other. Yes, exactly. And I think uh, uh, I would imagine that as you're older, let's say even out, you know, you're not, you're living a regular life of like an, an, a normal older person, uh, it's, it's still going to be difficult. So what are some, let's talk about the term microaggressions because that's a fairly new New, ex new word is it, you know, it, 
it seems to me. Mm-hmm. But, but I, I think it's a really important word. It is, yeah. Um, microaggression, we can think of a microaggression as death by a thousand paper cuts. Uh, so you get one paper cut and it hurts. It's annoying. You notice it all day long, but no big deal. Fine. You get a thousand paper cuts and it's debilitating. It starts weighing on you. So each of these things that in isolation are not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, you get them piled on you day after day, week after week, month after month, and they start to really cause an impact. So we're talking about things like people being misgendered, um, not being called the, the gender that they identify with, people not being called by the right name, um, people being looked at funny in the street, people being harassed in bathrooms, um, all of these things, each on their own might not be a huge deal, but when you're dealing with it all the time, it's something that causes a really big impact on you and your mental health. So as a, th- as a therapist and somebody comes to you and talks to you about these things, how do you, how do you help them with mm-hmm. this? They can't change the outside world. They can't change the right. outside. But how do you help them do this? Mm-hmm. It's a really good question. And it ties back to one of the other things that older trans individuals and all trans individuals really um, can struggle with is a feeling of not being supported and loneliness. So when someone is experiencing a lot of microaggressions and they don't have support where they can go and talk to their friend and say, hey, this thing happened today. It's really bumming me out. Um, When you don't have that extra support, these things weigh on you so much heavier. And so one of the big things that I help people do when they're experiencing a lot of these microaggressions is really try to get connected to a community of people who are supportive of them. So whether that is the LGBTQ community or not, it doesn't have to be, but just people and friends who support them. Um, And that provides, it's kind of not an inoculation in the sense that microaggressions won't ever bother you, but it provides a bit of a refuge from experiencing microaggressions and can um, gas you up, I guess is a, a good way to put it, where you have a little bit more strength to go out and face a world that is not always supportive of you. When you have this home base of people that you don't experience that with, that see you for who you are, that accept you for who you are and love you. And that is the number one mitigator. We know from tons of research on this of uh, negative mental health outcomes for folks any in any marginalized group. Um, but a lot of research has been done on the LGBTQ population and how social support provides a mediating effect for negative mental health outcomes. And my last question is, do you think that only trans people can help trans people? I mean, obviously you don't believe that, but uh, uh, there's so many areas in which, you know, only only addicts can help other addicts. You know, uh, do you think that 
binary straight, let's say, therapists can help people yes, who are trans? Course. We don't expect our heart surgeons to have had heart surgery. Um, yes, absolutely. People who are cis and straight can help trans people. Doing your own learning about working with trans folks, being really good at language, and having a lot of cultural humility to know that you're not going to understand everything simply because you are not in the trans body. And there's no way that you can understand everything the way that person would. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't be an effective therapist. Um, you can bring that difference into the room in the same way that I, as a white person, will bring up my whiteness when I have clients who are people of color. I think that is important. Um, but yes, 100%, I think that people who are cis and straight can be very effective therapists for trans individuals. Rena, thank you so much for your patience with me, <laughs> for your patience with my questions and my um, concerns about this and for being so informed and so knowledgeable and so kind yourself. Oh, thank um, you. I, I, I do want to thank you. Thank you so much for, for this interview. I appreciate it. I love talking about this. It's such an important topic. I'm glad that you're doing it. So am I. That was Rena, and I'm Barbara Alexander. I hope you'll join me next week for another interview. And by the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments about this program and any ideas you might have for future programs. My email address is info at ongoodauthority.com. And if you or someone you know would like to earn continuing education credit for listening to these podcasts, go to www.ongoodauthority.com for complete information. So until next time, this is Barbara Alexander thanking you for listening.